Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. Stephen is recovering from his second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, and we expect that he'll be recovered and back tomorrow. But uh, today, we are going to spend the hour talking about a subject that I have personally been thinking quite a bit about. I feel like we've all been asked this question at some point in the pandemic, or we've asked ourselves this question. Which part of your life has changed the most during the pandemic? Or maybe it's this. What defines how your life has changed in the last year? When someone asked me some version of that question recently, I thought, well, that's easy. It's my relationship with my two small kids and the challenges and joys even of redefining my life around their new and ever-changing schedules. My wife and I have been incredibly lucky. We have a robust support system. We both have a stable job situations. We both have parents who can help. And even then, it has been a life-defining challenge. For many people, it's been far more difficult. For, For so many parents, their ability to make sure that their kids have reliable, safe, affordable care It's just about impossible during the pandemic, and it's been extremely hard for providers as well. This hour, we're going to take a look at how this aspect of our lives and society is getting by more than a year into the pandemic, and if there's any relief on the horizon through federal assistance or other sources. Later, I'm going to speak with a person who's part of the local child care and early education landscape here in Detroit. But first, I'm joined by Alicia Haridasani Gupta, a reporter with The New York Times, who recently took a deep dive into the state of child care in four states throughout the nation, including Michigan. Her piece in The Times is titled Child Care in Crisis. Can Biden's plan save it? And she joins us now. Alicia, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Jake. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for for joining this show and and for talking about this subject. You you cover four different areas of of the United States, including here in Michigan. We'll talk more specifically about Midland in just a second. Uh, But you say that they are not isolated pockets of struggle. Briefly start just by telling Mm us, you know, give us a big picture idea of what's playing out in the child care sector across the country. Right. So so let's cast our minds back to March of last year when I think every single industry was getting mixed mixed messages. No one really knew what, what to do or how to proceed. Um, and I think the first thing parents did was pull their children out of schools and childcare, right, for their safety. Um, but of course, childcare centers run as small businesses. They don't have the sort of government funding that schools do. And so every time they they don't have children in, they lose income. So at the beginning of the pandemic for months and months, childcare centers were either, either losing hundreds of thousands of dollars or they could not survive and they shut down. I think in the summer, something like 50% of childcare centers were closed. Wow. Um, and then when things started to open back up, um, you know, by that time, parents had sort of scrambled together a plan, right? Um, you know, like you said, you had a support network, you have your parents to help. So maybe someone's turned to their parents and said, look, you look after my children. I don't I don't feel comfortable putting them back into childcare centers. And so even when things were opening up, childcare centers were still running really low on income and, and um, revenue because no one was really bringing their children back in. It really took until January this year from what I'm hearing, for the numbers to sort of 
tick back up in terms of enrollment. Um, so it really became a vicious cycle of first closing and then when you open, not having the the customers come back. And that's one of the big issues with this sort of, you know, and, and this this seems to be uh, in many ways a very necessary reality of the pandemic, the, uh, you know, kind of opening up as risk decreases, shutting back down when, when risk goes back up and, you know, this sort of a back and forth uh, that we've seen. But, um, you know, if I'm reading your piece correctly, it seems like you know the the demand for childcare it's not it's not easy it's it's sort of impossible for these centers to just you know dial back and then go back to full swing mm-hmm. and then I mean, you know it just doesn't work that way right exactly all four of the centers that i spoke to um had in, had increased um covid precautions that they had to take which of course costs money right um getting cleaning supplies having to space their children out and if you i'm sure i mean how i just wanted to ask you before we get back to this how old are your kids so i have a, a kindergartner who just last week turned 6 and i have a uh, a, um, a toddler who's uh, one one and a half he'll be turning 2 in over the summer so yeah 6 and, and right. one and a half yeah Right. So, so, you know, one, one childcare provider told me like, try and socially distance from a one year old, (laughs) you know, like it just doesn't work. It doesn't happen. And so it's not like schools where you can space desks out and, you know, open the window and expect the kids to sit on the desk. These are very um, mobile (laughs) individuals. Right. Um, So that was really difficult for them to figure out. And so what they had to do was reduce group sizes, Um, You know, that means reducing teachers as well. It was just a really, it was a Rubik's Cube of calculations that they were continuously doing in order to either keep costs down or, you know, just to just to like survive to the next month. So I'm curious if you have a sense of, of how many parents are like me, in, in other words, depending on a relative or someone else in their support system that can watch their kids during the day? And then how many parents really depend on these childcare facilities to make sure that they're, because again, like I said, we're very lucky to have that support system. Mm -hmm. It's not like most people can just fall back on that. Right. So before the pandemic, and I think that's where we really get our most uh, definitive data, 90% of dual income parents had some kind of childcare arrangement. And that includes arrangements like yours where, you know, your parents are stepping in. More than 60% of those parents, though, turn to a child care center sort of situation. So there's there's a huge demand. And of course, you know, if you expect parents to go back to work, then that demand has to, that supply has to meet the demand. Um, and that's the problem here, right? A lot of, a lot of child care centers closed down in the last year. And so like, you know, we discussed the dialing back up is going to be difficult, even mm. if, even if offices and, and, and the more normal life sort of comes back. And that sort of leads us to this really heartbreaking story that we've heard so often throughout the pandemic, which is parents and especially mothers being forced to quit their jobs to care for their kids. That in mm-hmm. itself is another mm-hmm. another sort of crisis, yep. a workforce crisis within a child care crisis. Right. And I, I think that also comes back to the fact that child care is really expensive. Um, it is it is not really that affordable for many parents across the country. So if one person has lost their job, it's just untenable. Um, you know, of course, affordability, affordability varies by state and geography. And, you know, if you're a dual income parent or single parent, 
So in Illinois, for example, the average cost of childcare is about 14% of median household income. Whereas in Massachusetts, uh, which is one of the most expensive states for childcare, it can cost up to 22% of median household income. So if one person loses their income, it just becomes, the math doesn't, doesn't add up. Mm. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today on Detroit Today. I'm talking with Alicia Haridasani Gupta, gender reporter covering politics, business, technology, health, and culture through the gender lens for the New York Times. She also writes the In Her Words newsletter, and uh, we're talking about the childcare crisis here in America. It wasn't new during the pandemic, but it has certainly gotten worse over the last year. And we want to hear from you during this conversation. Are you a parent? Have you been navigating child care during the pandemic? Are you relying on family to help care for your children? Have you been using child care services during the pandemic? And would you support universal child care in this country? Now we're talking about big policy changes. How how do you propose that we pay for something like that? Uh, you know, and we really also want to hear from you if you work in child care. What has been your experience during the pandemic? Again, the number on the lines, as always, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And you can also use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter. We'll try to work your comments or questions into the conversation as well. But again, call us up, 313 577 1019. And Alicia, you know, can you give me a sense of what employment is like in the childcare sector right now as we speak? Is it re- rebounding at all? Um, so almost 400,000 jobs in the childcare sector were lost in in the beginning of the pandemic last year. Uh, that number has come down dramatically. Yes, um, you know, right now unemployment in the sector is down by 16%, though. Um, you know, that compare that to the overall unemployment rate of 6%, you'll see how badly the industry is mm. doing. I also want to point out the fact that those who have lost their jobs in this sector are predominantly women and predominantly women of color. Mm. Um, and before they lost their jobs, they a large number of them were earning an average of $11.65 per hour. And they were not really getting benefits. A lot of them didn't have paid leave. A lot of them didn't have good health care access. Um, compare compare that salary, uh, that average wage to, to kindergarten teachers who make an average of $32.80 by the hour. So you really begin to see the discrepancy there. So, you know, if we're talking about losing... If we're talking about pure numbers, the industry is bounding back. But, you know, these these um, the workers are still not earning that much, even if they've gotten their jobs back. And and talk a little bit also about, you know, how their how child care centers are helping with remote learning for for students who have parents out of the house working right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, any idea what's going, you know, uh, how that's going and if these centers uh, actually have the bandwidth and resources to sort of pull that off? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one of the, the um, child care providers that I spoke to that's based in uh, in Virginia, they were saying that, uh, you know, they never used to have school age kids and they had zero school age kids before the pandemic. And now they have dozens, something like 57. Um, hmm. It's crazy because what happened is not only do their teachers have kids who, in order to work, had to bring their their school-age kids into the center and say, hey, look, there's Wi-Fi, set yourself up while I work, you know, that sort of thing. And then when other parents realized that they were taking in school-age kids, 
they brought in their older sisters and older brothers of the toddlers who were in the childcare center and mm. sort of just dropping every, all their children <laughs> off at once and going to work. And, you know, she, this childcare provider, she was saying, we are basically doing what school teachers are doing, but we're not being paid that much. And we're not getting the guidance that we need that, that schools are getting. Um, right. And so we're kind of just sitting there in the background, helping kids log in, um, you know, trying to walk them through the syllabus, basically doing what teachers are doing right now, but really not getting recognized. And, for it. and, and I have to imagine, and there's some personal experience in here as well, uh, that the, that that is a really difficult situation to manage as well. I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say, and I'm, I'm not trying to throw any any centers under the bus at all, because I think it's just it's just so challenging. But, um, you know, for most of this year, my kindergartner has been online uh, doing virtual learning for kindergarten. And a lot of his uh, classmates are in these sort of, you know, uh, hubs or or care centers as well because their parents simply can't do what I've been doing, which is essentially Mm -hmm. sitting there with him, uh, Mm -hmm. walking him through and helping him through the whole process. Um, It is hard for me. Uh, with one kid to do that, mm. uh, can, thinking about a, a, a childcare facility with uh, mm. with so many kids that are all doing that at the same time, when that's not really what you know what what they've uh, been yeah. doing in the past. Uh, and and I'll say, you know, you can tell which kids are are in those centers. It seems kind of chaotic there. You know, there's because yeah. there's just so many so many kids to to handle. I mean, it just mm-hmm. seems untenable in so many ways. Yeah. And I need to correct myself. I said the child care center I was talking about was West Virginia, but it was in Virginia. Sorry, let me get back to the question. (laughs) Um, I think one thing that's interesting that I, you know, when I was doing this research for this piece is that there's a ratio for teacher to student that's considered high quality care, right? Mm -hmm. So for toddlers, it's sort of one teacher to four, four toddlers. And the older the child gets, the fewer teachers you need. Um, but again, you're not, you're not at a point where you have one teacher for a classroom, right? You're, you still have, you still need one or two teachers for sort of preschool age kids, Mm -hmm. but suddenly now you have school aged kids. You're kind of, when you're trying to think about who takes which shift, that itself is such a Rubik's cube, right? It's such a strange calculation of, should I put two teachers on this just because this child is one year older or should I put one teacher here and then sort of figure out how it goes and she doesn't have any training in this like it kind of and labor is the biggest cost for child care centers so really understanding where to put teachers and how many hours to put them on is such a big part of their business model and if you're suddenly throwing school-age kids at them it's it's really difficult for them to figure it out you're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson today, and we're talking about child care during the pandemic uh, and even before the pandemic, how we have tried or have maybe not tried to support this vital service that exists for so many parents and the people who work in that industry. I'm talking with Alicia Haridasani Gupta with The New York Times, uh, who is a gender reporter covering policy, politics, business, technology, health and culture through the 
gender lens for the New York Times. And we want to hear from you. Uh, you know, if you are a parent, please, you know, call and tell us exactly what have you been experiencing in terms of trying to juggle this question of how to make sure that your kids have someone taking care of them throughout the day, especially if you're a working parent. How have you been navigating childcare during the pandemic? Um, you know, are you relying on family members? Are you relying on your support network? Uh, or are you relying on uh, child care centers to, to make sure that that's happening? And, you know, what do you think needs to happen to better support this uh, this sector of our economy and also this really important aspect of our lives. What should we change policy wise to make sure that people are being supported where they work and also that families are being supported? And, and also, if you work in the child care industry, we really, really want to hear from you today. What has your experience been like? Again, the number is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And uh, Alicia, you uh, again went to kinder care in Midland, Michigan, a place that I'm mm-hmm. somewhat familiar with myself, although that mm-hmm. is a little north of us here in Detroit. But, uh, you know, tell our audience about your reporting on what is happening there in Midland. Um, so I reached out to kinder care. Uh, this, so it took me actually three months to write this piece. So I reached out to them. Well, maybe now it's four months. Hmm. Um, I reached out to them in January uh, and I just said, do you mind, uh, you know, I did my interviews and I asked her, you know, I don't want to add to your list of things to do, but I, I hope you you could send me voice notes of your day because I'd like to see, you know, really what happens on a day-to-day basis. And if, I mean, I wish I could share those voice notes with you because mm. it's so, she's sort of multitasking. She's the director of the childcare center. And one minute she is in the kitchen helping with food preparation in the morning, like breakfast preparation in the morning, the next minute, she's sort of cleaning up uh, the classroom. And then she's back to, you know, um, administration, taking calls from parents, taking, you know, making, taking, uh, sorry, taking stock of enrollment, you know, keeping track of that kind of thing, making sure that there are enough teachers on the shift, the next shift or the next day, you know, it's her day is, so juxtaposed, right? Before the pandemic, she would have had a cook, a cleaner, and someone to look after everyone's shift. But because of the pandemic, she had to cut so much of her staff that she had to do everything herself, her and her co-director. At the height of the pandemic, they went from 22 workers to four. (laughs) That's, That's really, you know, and so that doesn't mean that the work stops. It just means that those four people are really stretched thin. Mm hmm. Yeah, I know the the very first uh, the, when we meet uh, her in your piece, she is preparing food in the kitchen, like you said, yep. because the, yeah. the, the cook only comes in for lunch. Right. I mean, yeah. and, and I assume that that is pretty typical for for many care facilities across the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she was mentioning, I think um, I, I didn't have space to get into this in the piece, but she mentioned as well that. Um, so in the beginning, she, she, she decided to keep the doors open and they had a lot of essential worker kids. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a flood at some time, some point last year. I, I'm sure you remember, yeah. um, but I forget oh, which yeah. month it was. It was a massive flood. Um, so they had to shut down and 
every time you shut down a childcare center, that's lost income. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sound like that's just a pure business calculation and she needs to stay open for money. But it, you know, already she was losing so much money and then there was a flood. They had to shut down because even their workers couldn't get in. Um, but, you know, she was back out in the community. Her sleeves rolled up to help everyone else sort of evacuate and move, move, move their belongings. Um, you know, so she really is invested in her community. She is so passionate about helping children and families. Um, so I guess that's why she, you know, kept at it. She, yeah. When I called her back in March, she was, she said, you know, it's been a really emotional roller coaster. It's mm. been tough for her. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on Detroit Today. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation. And we're also going to bring a local voice into the mix, someone who is working in child care here in Detroit. And we'll hear more from Alicia Haradasani Gupta of The New York Times as well. Stay tuned and join us on the phones. 313-577-1019. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Near in for Stephen Henderson today. We are talking child care during the pandemic, an issue that is uh, near and dear to my heart, I guess is a way of putting it, but uh, it's something that has been a huge challenge for so many parents and families, as well as the people who work in child care all around the country. I'm speaking with Alicia Haridasani Gupta, a gender reporter covering politics, business, technology, health, and culture through the gender lens for the New York Times. She also writes the In Her Words newsletter. And I also would like to welcome Denise Smith, Implementation Director for Hope Starts Here, an early childhood partnership here in Detroit. Denise, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so, Denise, I, I want to talk with you a little bit about sort of what, what's going on here in Detroit. One thing we, I really want to mention is that this week happens to be Week of the Young Child, and April 27th, in a couple weeks, is Detroit Day of the Young Child. Uh, for people who don't know, what are these uh, all about, and what kinds of activities are on tap? Certainly. So Week of the Young Child is actually a a national movement. The National Association for the Education of Young Children um, began this many years ago. It's the 50th anniversary, actually. And it is to both recognize um, the importance of early childhood educators in the lives and the development of young children, but also to celebrate these children um, as our future. And so the activities could include they're typically community-based. So here in Detroit, uh, Hope Starts Here, Imperative Number 2, Detroit Champions for Hope, uh, have hosted a number of activities. And since the mayor, Mayor Duggan, proclaimed April 27th as the Day of Detroit Young Child, these community-wide activities include community partners coming together, um, providing activities that engage both family and children, all in celebration of the children their parents and educators. 
So talk a little bit about the work that Hope Starts Here is doing here in Detroit. What is, uh, you know, what, what, what have you been seeing? Uh, what is the work you're doing and what have you been seeing, especially during the pandemic in the, the world of child care? Certainly. In 2017, Hope Starts Here put a stake in the ground as the local purveyor of early childhood system development. So we are a connector of resources, of organizations um, to the system itself for early childhood to ensure that young children um, birth through age eight and their families have what they need, uh, a system that is responsive, that is coordinated to support their needs. And so we're implementing using a distributed leadership model that six organizations, Detroit-based organizations, are leading on each of those imperatives or what we must do to reach that goal. Um, We have a 2027 goal that Detroit will be a city that puts young children and their families first. And that involves all of the aspects of a child's development from health to facility quality to early childhood educators um, having the wages that they need to continue to stay Uh, in this field and to do the quality work that we know that they can do, um, including compensation uh, and weight and benefits. Uh, We also are looking at what is the funding levels that are necessary to sustain this kind of system. And, you know, in, in Alicia's piece, uh, Alicia Harita Sanagupta, uh, Alicia, I want to ask you about this first. And then, Denise, I'm curious what you uh, have to say about how you view this as someone who's seeing things on the ground here in Detroit as well. But, uh, you know, Alicia, you write about how child care workers are adding all kinds of tasks to their daily routines as part of their jobs. We already talked about directors of child care centers uh, essentially uh, working on, on food duty uh, for children. But uh, also there's some examples, including helping families of young children navigate positive COVID tests inside their household, mm-hmm. figuring out how best to isolate, uh, especially, you know, if there is a, a positive case, um, especially for low-income families and parents who don't speak English as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of those uh, things, if any, uh, that, you know, you have seen from child care providers and what are they telling you, Alicia? Mm-hmm. So you, you pointed out two of the examples already. So food service, and um, you know, helping the community. I want the the childcare center in Virginia really became like a um, a hub, you know, for um, because a lot of its children that it was serving uh, or is serving is are children from low income families and children from uh, um, they were people of color and immigrants. So you know, a lot of them didn't speak English. A lot of them are in frontline jobs, and so they really could not shut down. And they became, you know, that was the place where uh, several parents were just dropping their school kids off because they were saying, "Hey, I really I can't stay home, and I can't look, I can't help my kid with remote learning. Can you do it?" Um, and in the start, they were like, "Sure, just you know, drop them in the corner." And then it mm. became an actual thing, right? They had <laughs> right. to get they had to get tables and they had to get desks and chairs. And then the other thing that they struggled with was they used to rely on the school district for food and for lunch, breakfast. Um, And then when the school district shut down, they had to kind of create their own little kitchen um, to, to feed these kids. Right. Um, So she said she went to Best Buy, brokered a deal, got some air fryers and rice cookers and Mm. should have just like improvised in the beginning. But now if you look at pictures, they have a full blown kitchen. So in a sense, they really had to just 
adapt really quickly and um, address the needs that they that they were sort of getting day by day. You know, it was it was different every day. And Denise, what are you seeing in in that regard with the, all these sort of extra um, expectations or extra services that uh, you know childcare providers are trying to provide right now in, here in Detroit? What are what are you seeing? Absolutely, I think similar to what has been shared, we have seen early childhood educators step into the gap for hybrid and virtual learners of school-age children and their families. Uh, What people don't realize is that traditionally during the summer months, early childhood educators take on this role. They do care for school-age children. And so in some cases for certain families, this was natural. However, for those who did not utilize these services during the summer, It became really critical for early childhood educators in Detroit to step into that gap um, so that, as shared, families could continue to work. Um, Those who were deemed essential workers, which wasn't a classification for early childhood educators in the beginning, um, could Mm -hmm. provide those kinds of of services. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. we uh, in Detroit have really worked to make sure that we are utilizing the funds that eventually came in from the state to support these school-age children at early childhood programs, meaning that they were compensated for that time. As Mm -hmm. I mentioned, because during the summer months, you're able to do this as an early childhood educator. The initial rounds of a child care relief afforded the opportunity to extend those hours. At Mm -hmm. certain point during the rounds, however, that was eliminated, Mm -hmm. um, which caused a a lot of mayhem for not only the Mm -hmm. programs, but for families because they couldn't afford to keep these children Mm -hmm. in their care. Uh, So a lot of advocates, including myself, really uh, pressed on the state to re-implement the provision to allow for early childhood programs to be paid um, while caring for school-age children. So this is just one of the, the things that they've stepped into the gap to do. Uh, similarly, you know, we had to figure out food and support for these young children, these school-age children, um, because mm-hmm. the districts did not step in to ensure that that the support needed to ensure that those school-age children were supported in their virtual learning. The platforms being used were not provided, so they scrambled, they improvised, um, and we, and supporting them, made sure that community-based organizations that were providing tutoring, et cetera, were available to these programs. 313-577-1019 is the number on the lines. I want to get to a couple callers here. Uh, let's go to Nicole in Westland. Nicole, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you. Yeah, what would you like to say? Um, so I am an assistant teacher, um, child care before, um, full day and after school, and... I, because, I mean, we're so short-staffed, um, the turnover rate in childcare already was really, really high, but with the pandemic and with everything going on, it's just, it's even more exacerbated. And so um, I'm doing the work of a lead teacher while getting mm-hmm. the pay of an assistant teacher. Mm-hmm. And it's just, sometimes it can get really difficult with just one or two teachers in a classroom when really like three are needed. Yeah. It's been, you know, kind of crazy. And and Nicole, talk about sort of, uh, you know, more of how your roles have changed, you know, the, the things that you're doing differently during the pandemic that maybe you uh, didn't have to do before or that were just, uh, you know, different. So 
um, assistant teacher, it was basically just, I mean, I was a helper. Mm-hmm. I'd go in um, usually um, midday and I would help teachers. I'd help clean. I'd help get kids their hands washed, you know, getting ready for certain things, helping with transitions, um, especially kids who are, you know, because a lot of uh, um, our programs are in schools sure. and help kids transition, you know, to online learning or get them to their classrooms. And now, I mean, I am helping with snack. I'm helping with lesson planning. I'm helping with curriculum. And I mean, I'm, I'm don't have any training for that. So I'm learning right. all of it, you know, yeah. as I go. Nicole, I really yeah. appreciate that, uh, the, that you called in and that you were listening. Thank you so much for that perspective. I think that uh, based on this conversation, mm-hmm. definitely not alone. <laughs> There's a lot of people who are uh, experiencing something similar. So thank you again, Nicole, for that. I also want to go to Giselle in Indiana, who is calling up. Uh, Giselle, uh, you're on the other side of uh, child care here. Uh, yeah, I am. I am a retired, recently retired school teacher. I retired just in December, and I do want to address one thing that um, uh, Alicia has said. Um, I, first of all, I want to say, you know, child care workers are underappreciated and underpaid. I'm mm-hmm. very much on their side. But she said that uh, child care workers are essentially doing the same work as teachers. Um, one, I want to address that because... Um, and your previous caller just said, you know, she was an assistant teacher. Now she's doing lesson planning mm-hmm. uh, curriculum. She's not trained. Um, I, I wonder how many child care workers are doing lesson planning and curriculum. Teachers are another group that have been seriously underappreciated and underpaid throughout uh, a long time. And so I just, I just want to clarify um, the mm-hmm. amount of work that I had to do uh, in during the um, the COVID shutdown, teaching hybrid mm-hmm. classes, teaching uh, mm-hmm. online and in-person classes at the same time it was mm-hmm. overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the amount of instruction I had to learn how to teach online. And so mm-hmm. I just want to, you know, stress that, hey, teachers, yes, are trained to do the curriculum, the lesson planning. Schools are not closed per se. Teachers are still working, and they're working harder than ever they than, than ever they have in the past. Yeah, so G- I just I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, Giselle, I really appreciate that perspective, and I think it is a really important mm-hmm. one too. Um, you know, uh, Alicia, I I, I've, I I absolutely hear where Giselle is coming from there, and I, I think mm-hmm. that uh, teachers are another group that have felt a real. Uh, burden there, but I, 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 my, my assumption about what you were saying there is, is uh, that uh, what what childcare providers are doing is is uh, sort of going into the territory, maybe not completely, um, you know. Um, but but yeah, address what what Giselle is saying there. Yeah, thank you, Jake, and thanks, Giselle, for calling in. I understand your point, and I completely agree with you. Teachers are obviously a whole different ball game. Um, but what I meant was that. They are helping their kids um, sort of log in. And, if, and I'm, I'm talking really um, sort of first graders and kindergartners um, who, you know, can't sort of log in and do remote learning by themselves. And that's what I meant by they're basically doing what, what, what a teacher would do is by sitting by, next to them and helping them really understand what they're learning through remote learning. 
um, right. and helping them navigate that curriculum because their parents weren't able to do that. Uh, Jake, you mentioned, you know, having to sit with your child and really help them with school is, is a tough job. And it, it is, really yeah. makes us, yeah, it makes us all appreciate what teachers and childcare providers do because their jobs are really not easy. Their jobs are extremely difficult. And I think I've seen so many people online saying teachers and childcare providers should be paid a billion dollars right? because they're yes. just, you know, they're, they're doing God's work. Right. That's very true. And like I said, you know, uh, as, as someone who is not a teacher, as someone who is only dealing with one child mm-hmm. again, yeah. you know, oh my gosh, the appreciation for teachers and for childcare workers is absolutely through the roof. And um, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, before, before we take another break, I do want to ask both uh, you, Alicia and you, Denise, about, uh, Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion relief package uh, and sort of how that might affect child care as well. Um, Alicia, I'll start with you really quick. You know, what, what are you seeing from the uh, forthcoming American Families Plan in terms of what it might do to uh, address some of these issues we're talking about? Right. Um, so I think we need to think about it as a two-part plan. So the first infrastructure plan is very um it's very focused on brick and mortar, right? So they wanted to give more money for childcare providers to open new centers in places that were really lacking supply or in places where childcare providers closed. So that's part one. Part two is to really expand accessibility. And there's, there, there is um, mention of some kind of universal pre-K system. Mm. The exact outlines of that have not been uh, revealed yet. But what I'm hearing from advocates and grassroots organizations is that they want to create a robust care economy in the sense that not only is childcare affordable for parents, but it pays its workers dignified wages and provides them with the benefits and protections of a good job. So they want to cap childcare at 7% of median household income so that you know it's more accessible for more families. They also want to provide paid and paid family and medical leave for every worker in the country of 12 weeks. So that means that even childcare providers can, you know, take time off if they need to. And also if parents decide they want to stay home and take a look after their kids, that they're not penalized for it. So really creating a system that that makes caregiving, whether it's your own family or whether it's the caregiving care providers, um, valuing caregiving mm. is, is the tagline. Sure. And, and Denise, uh, what are you seeing uh, in terms of what the what's coming from the federal government in ter- terms of support right now? What are your hopes for what what you really need to make sure that uh, this is something that can approach sustainability in some way? Before I, I answer that, if, if you don't mind, Jake, I do want to just circle back to the previous uh, exchange sure. about early childhood educators. I think there is a misperception of child care and the folks who are providing it as merely babysitters. Mm-hmm. And the profession of early child care includes educators who have bachelor's and even master degrees uh, who are providing foundational pieces for children's learning and success later in life. What we haven't addressed really well, and it needs to change and hopefully with what President Biden is putting forth and the the relief package and the governor's response to those things and what she's putting in her budget will get us to a place where this field is no longer undervalued and underpaid and undersupported. 
Um, what we know is that the third grade reading law that we now have here in Michigan, where children can be retained, often is due to, I mean, there are another, a number of inputs, but often is due to not having the foundational pieces that they need and could have received in those earlier years had proper supports been there or they had access mm -hmm. to high quality mm -hmm. early learning. Mm -hmm. um, so I am hoping that, you know, what the president has put forth and even the governor in her 2022 recommendations uh, actually gets us to this kind of wage parity for early childhood mm -hmm. educators, improving mm -hmm. facility quality, which we know we need, and providing these early childhood educators with the kind of professional support that they need to manage the many things that they have to uh, navigate during the day, including children who might have special needs and other things that need to be supported for which they have not been given specialized training. Um, so I think the differences that you certainly see, which are apparent to me, uh, you know, based on the caller's last comments, is that the early elementary and K-12 system has been supported in a way that the early childhood system has not. Mm. And that mm -hmm. needs to change if we're intending to have better trajectories for young children. Yeah. All right. We're going to such a good point, Denise. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, no, no, that's yeah. that's totally. I, I appreciate that. Uh, we do need to take a quick break here. I want to thank Alicia Haridasani Gupta with the New York Times for joining us. Alicia, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for joining thank us on you. Detroit today. And we're going to keep thank Denise. Absolutely, we're going to keep Denise Smith, uh, implementation director for Hope Starts Here. We're going to continue this conversation about early childhood in uh, Detroit and across the country. Uh, and we're going to take more of your calls on the phones, 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. Bernadette in Old Redford, you're next right after this. To Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson today. We are talking about the child care crisis in this country and how it is affecting us right here in Detroit. Obviously, the pandemic has not helped with that. Uh, and we are talking with Denise Smith, Implementation Director for Hope Starts Here, an early childhood partnership in Detroit. If you want to join the conversation, you can call eight, uh, sorry, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Tell us how you're navigating child care during this pandemic. If you're relying on child care centers, if you are relying on parents or other people in your support network, uh, and if you work in the child care industry, what has been your experience? What are you seeing uh, as this has all been playing out? Again, the number is 313-577-1019. You can also use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter, and we'll work you into the conversation. I want to start off here with Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning, Jake. Uh Often this conversation is framed with a focus on economically disadvantaged families. Mm. But I want to uh, focus you on well-to-do families. Uh, yes, they're tearing out their hair. They only have one, two, or three kids. But they put <laughs> their kids in classrooms with 20 or 30 kids. Mm. You know, and then 
Boilermakers are not like George Bush um, Sr., who once said, teachers don't do it for the money. Well, teachers do it for the money, as well as more generous reasons, personally. Uh, why not pay people what they're worth? Mm. Bernadette, I, I really appreciate this this comment, and and in some ways you're talking about me. <laughs> I really appreciate that because it's true. I feel like uh, you know there there is uh, definitely an aspect of this conversation where uh, you know uh, f- again uh, those of us who are lucky that have stable jobs and that are uh, you know with young kids and you know even I will say I I'm I'm not uh, ashamed to say that it is a struggle for us as well, um, but I, I think it is really important to also. Talk about how important um, it is to to support people who just don't have the same kind of resources uh, that those of us who are lucky enough and privileged enough to have those resources have. Uh, but Denise Smith, talk a little bit about that about the uh, the ways that this is um, affecting uh, people of different income levels in different ways. Sure, certainly, uh, you know, the pandemic created a situation where we had an increase and the gap that we saw in available seats for children. So pre-COVID, and so this crosses economic strata, right? So pre-COVID, we had a seat gap of 28,000 seats in Detroit, Mm -hmm. um, which included mostly infants and toddlers. At the height of COVID, that scaled to 43,000 seats that were not available as options for families. Mm. Um, Again, regardless of income. So this was due in part to programs shutting down, but also to those that were started to reopen operating at 50 percent of enrollment due to the health and safety precautions and which I believe Alicia talked about earlier. Sure. So you have programs operating at at 50 percent enrollment um, and being burdened with trying to get personal protection equipment and supplies to make sure their environments are safe. Um, some spending their entire Saturdays going from store to store to, to locate these items um, because they, as early childhood educators, were not initially designated as essential workers and did not have access to these provisions in a centralized way. Of course, our uh, foundation community, which you know is quite robust in southeastern Michigan, responded along with local partners to make sure that we could mitigate um, that situation. But the supports for essential workers, including them in that and also addressing some of these ongoing needs, I think is a point where we're finally seeing some light. Uh, We know that in the governor's uh, recommendations for even her 2021 budget, it increased eligibility for more families. Um, So it increased the federal poverty level line from 150 to 200 percent, even though it's temporary. So if we want more families eligible across economic strata, so reaching into those middle income families, then we definitely need to at least sustain that temporary provision to 185 percent. What we know nationally is that, you know, the the amount of funds that it takes to care for children, the cost of child care in Michigan is substantial. Mm-hmm. A family with a median income even, um, that's $57,000. It's 19% of their their annual income that they're paying out for child care. Right. So it's really high. Well, and, um, and we, we need to begin to address those things. Well, and, and, and you know, you mentioned the fact that 
childcare workers were not deemed essential workers in the first place. And I feel like this goes, if, if you kind of distill so, so many of the aspects of this conversation that we've been talking about throughout this hour, a lot of it comes down to simply our attitudes toward childcare in this country, that we are one of the very few developed countries that doesn't really treat childcare as a right or as something that is worth really focusing a lot of our investments in. Uh, Talk a little bit about that attitude and maybe how we change that. I know that's a big question that's probably above all of our pay scales, but, you know, what is, what, you know, how do you, you know, steer that ship in a different direction when really so many other countries that are as wealthy or not as wealthy as we are, are are really supporting families in this way. I mean, as you mentioned, this is an economic, very serious economic issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, in order to make it apparent for folks, we've had to make that argument, you know, the return on investment, the economic um, difficulties that it poses for communities, for our states, uh, if we don't begin to address child care as a basic need for families, as a moral obligation even I would push for our children and their later success. So what we we don't have uh, and we need to get to is to shift this perception that has been pervasive, honestly, to your point, forever, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because it has been deemed child care, I'm doing air quotes, (laughs) as something that is a mother's choice. Right. Mom chose to go back to work, and so therefore these children need somebody to look after them while she's doing that. But mom should really stay at home. Mm. Um, so you've seen this heard over and over again uh, from certain legislators, our, our even leaders, um, talking about presidents, speaking to this fact that they're disrupting family values and right. the family core by putting money into a system that really shouldn't be here in the first place. And that was the he was that was actually Richard Nixon's veto explanation when he vetoed a child care a, essentially a universal child care bill uh, back I believe in the 70s that it would erode right. the family structure. Um I mean, just think about that. <laughs> that is uh, just kind of uh, insane to think about right now. But uh, really quickly before we break, I want to go quickly to Abby in Royal Oak. Uh, Abby, again, I only have about 30 seconds here, but I wanted to get your perspective in. Oh, thank you so much for taking my call. Yeah, I just, I'm a nanny. I've been nannying for the same family for about six years. And it's just been interesting because my boss is a pediatrician and just, uh, her office just started distributing the vaccine. So that's been extended hours for me. And then also just trying to navigate how the kids, I feel like I've been having to make some parenting decisions mm-hmm. that I haven't necessarily had to make ever before, as far as like my own safety going to parks when they opened and like extracurricular activities that I normally was taking them to. And the parents aren't giving me like, they're giving sure. me a lot of freedom, which is awesome. But it's hard to try to navigate like, their best interest and keeping myself safe. Right. It's still a job, so it's, it's hard. It's, yeah, more than, yeah, that's absolutely, I mean, it's tough on all of us. <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, thank you. Exactly. Thank you, Abby, for calling and thanks for that perspective. I also want to thank Denise Smith, Implementation Director for Hope Starts Here, an early childhood partnership here in Detroit. 
Denise, thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. All right, that's all for Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neeran for Stephen Henderson. Stephen will be back tomorrow for a conversation with activist and journalist Desiree Cooper about how she's been navigating her life as a caregiver over the last year. This is WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Thank you so much for listening.